0: Say like some of the best animators that I've ever worked with or worked with at Pixar took the longest to do their shots, but they're the shots that people talk about when they're walking out of the movie theater. I'm sure you've gone through moments where you're burned out. How do you find the will to
1: carry on, Kyle? How do you find the fire again?
2: Let's say I know nothing about storytelling, like, and I wanted to write a book today. What would be the one advice you would give me?
1: We should do it together in unison like three two one let's, let's get started, get started. <laughs> three two one let's let's get started okay.
2: <laughs> three two one
1: let's, let's get, get started,
2: started. Are you interested in breaking into the wonderful world of video games, animations, film, motion design, and more? Are you already an industry professional just looking up to level up your game? Welcome to the Industry Standards Podcast, your number one source of news, advice, and education about your favorite entertainment industries.
1: Join us as we dive into the insights, experiences, and get tips from creative leaders across the board from video games, motion picture, animation, and beyond. Gain a deeper understanding as we speak to creative professionals and get their lessons learned, hear their stories and get invaluable tips. Our goal is to help you achieve your goals and make your mark in the creative industry.
2: My name's Anna Carolina Pereira and I am one of your hosts today. Um, I am a college professor at the Ringling College of Art and Design and 3D technical artist, game and VR developer, character artist online. I mentor people from all over the world who wants to break into games and VR really excited to be here so that we can share some tips from the greatest minds that our industries have ever seen.
1: Hi, I'm your co-host Joshua Singh. Uh, I'm an artist and art director. Uh, I've been in the video game industry for about 18 years working at studios, both large and small. I'm interested in everything creative. I'm interested in speaking to other creative professionals about their experiences and learning as much as I can from everybody.
2: Shout out to today's sponsor, the Ringling College of Art and Design's virtual reality program. You'll hear more from them somewhere in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the second episode of the Industry Standards Podcast. Today we have none other than Kyle Balda as our wonderful guest. Kyle has been in the animation industry for 30 years. I looked on your IMDB and Mm -hmm. the first thing is 1992 which yeah, right. is exactly 30 years ago, um, which is awesome. Like, you know, that is like long-lasting career. I always say that, at least in the game industry, the average stay is five years. Okay. So, uh, you know, 30 years is crazy. Like, that deserves to be celebrated. Kyle has been a director on multiple animated movies that you may have heard of, such as Despicable Me 3, The Lorax, Minions, and Minions, The Rise of Gru. That's right you've also been nominated for multiple BAFTA awards
0: uh got nominated for minions
2: yeah minions that was fun that super f- awesome and he's gonna tell you in a second about all the other movies he's been an animator on but he's also really into dungeons and dragons and you know has quite a bit of experience being a dungeon master and player too right
0: yeah, but more often doesn't Dungeon
2: More Dungeon Master. Yeah. Got to bring that creative vision in. Yeah, you
0: know? lot like, like directing.
2: <laughs> so, Kyle, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, it is such an honor to be here with you today on your Sunday afternoon, you know, that you could be doing some fun stuff, to, to playing some Dungeons and Dragons maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we really appreciate you, especially at the short notice that we that we got Thank no, you, right. so thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the movies you've been an animator on?
0: Um, sure, The um, the my first feature film, well, actually, because you mentioned games, I, I wanted to say something about that because the first job I ever had was at LucasArts um, on a game called Day of the Tentacle, which was uh, like a D-paint animator, 2D pixel, Animation game for the Amigas way way back in the day, um, and uh, they they were doing. I was working on that game, and across the parking lot was ILM, uh, and they were making Jurassic Park that summer. So I only knew a little bit about it, and all that was really exciting. And um, then when I I went back to school for a year, and then my first job out of school. Was at ILM because once Jurassic Park came out, it changed everything and everybody wanted to make a movie with tons of VFX in it. Um, So I worked mostly on VFX films as an animator in the beginning Uh, The Flintstones, um, The Mask, and then um, Jumanji. And so on Jumanji, I was about 22 years old. And uh, they, because the industry was growing so quickly at that time, um, I was. Has to be an animation supervisor on it because everybody who had more seniority than me were, were supervising other films like Casper or Dragonheart and things like that. Um, so it was really like a trial by fire to do to be a supervisor at such a young age. And um, and then after Jumanji, uh, I had heard that there was a cool movie happening in New Zealand with a director named Peter Jackson who hadn't become the Peter Jackson that everyone knows yet. This is before Lord of the Rings. Uh, And that movie is called The Frighteners. And um, I did a lot of the Grim Reaper animation in that movie. Um, And then I came back for Mars Attacks at ILM. And then a lot of the guys that I had um, gone to school with at Cal Arts had gone over to Pixar as their first jobs, and, and Toy Story had just come out. So now uh, Pixar was going to make a bunch of other movies. And I had done a lot of VFX at that point. And I was thinking like, oh, it'd be really cool to do animation that's more emotional and acting and you know, where the characters you're animating are involved in telling the story rather than being like a creature or something like that. Uh, yeah. So I got a job at Pixar and worked at um, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, and Monsters, Inc. Uh, And then as far as animating goes, those were the films that I worked on. Um, I took a break from production and I went to teach uh, and I moved to Europe and um, was living in Europe. I was living in Paris for maybe like five or six years and I was teaching a lot all over Europe and I was doing lots of like short subject stuff, commercials and things like that. So uh, it was a good coincidence when Chris Maldandre, Brought Despicable Me to McGuff, which is a studio in Paris that I had been working at a lot, um, and uh, wanted to do Despicable Me. Illumination McGuff was was created, and that really changed everything for you know directing and doing a bunch of other non-animation related stuff. So
2: that is super cool. So you've done a lot more different types of things than your IMDb said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually i think it's super interesting that you were given a supervision or supervisor position so early um do you think
0: that had a big impact on your career or your approach to working um i think that i probably could have taken advantage of it more if i had been like more ambitious like in terms of like wanting to like get ahead and get promotions and things like that But like, especially early on, I was just so into animating, you know, that um, supervising uh, means that you're spending a lot of time working with animators and not animating yourself. So in Mm -hmm. some of the times I was feeling like, oh, I really want to just animate that shot. You know, I was it was like I hadn't done enough animation yet to kind of fully let go. Um, But I think that what was really cool about it was getting to work closer to. Uh, the director, the VFX supervisor, and learn more about, like, as a whole, how the pipeline was working or even how the, you know, the film was working. Um, At Pixar, I was a directing animator on Toy Story 2. And what was really cool about that was to be in the room often with the directors, even when they're doing, like, layout launches or things like that, or um, when you are, every sequence that would be, you know, launched and briefed for all the animators getting to be in all those meetings so that those were great opportunities because then you start to see like how the director is thinking about storytelling or how the head of layout is thinking about cinematography um whereas you know when i was only animating it's more like you you and your shot are there and Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like your whole world is like this seven seconds of the film for the next couple weeks um so that part of it i I really liked but um but i think a big thing that always drove me was just wanting to learn more and learn different um departments learn about visual storytelling uh learn about um you know what makes what makes storyboarding work what makes editing work all that kind of stuff so i always had that kind of a curiosity to sort of branch out from from just animation
2: that is super interesting and i bet that That branching out was a huge uh, bonus when you actually wanted to be in more of a director's position, right? Knowing a little bit more about the pipeline and how every team integrates, I imagine, is like super valuable.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I think knowing how to communicate with all the different artists uh, is is really important and being able to know what what they have to do to kind of, you know, Hit the note or realize the shot or like the vision for for a sequence or something like that um, knowing what they have to go through kind of helps you you know communicate in a better way so it's so that it's not um, you're speaking directly to their skills you know uh, and I think communication for a director is like one of the most important skills you can have
2: that is such good info so Kyle um a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, they are folks that either will start trying soon or have been trying to get their foot in the door into animation, motion design games and things like that right and getting your foot in the door especially nowadays can be really tricky mm-hmm. um, it almost feels like you have to be a maverick who does everything and does social media marketing you know goes to networking events has a reputation goes here and there it has an amazing portfolio and somehow five years of skills by the time you're 21 um, so tell us a little bit about you know you told us about ilm and like you know uh, cal arts so like what do you think it what did it take for you to get your foot in the door, you know, and get that career rolling?
0: It was, I mean, in the beginning, and this, this is probably different than a lot of the challenges that people who are trying to just break in now was uh, just even knowing that it was possible. Because when, when I was growing up, like in the 80s, you know, there was, I would watch an animated film and just think that like that happened because of some magic or something like <laughs> It was hard to imagine that people actually made this stuff. Um, and like, how would you do that? And I used to love to draw. Um, and so one of the things that made a huge difference in my life is um, just by chance, uh, a friend of the family, one of my cousins um, was uh, is uh, Dan Jupe, who at the time Was a disney animator and he had animated a lot of sebastian the crab and little mermaid uh and then on top of that he's just like an incredibly nice and generous person and he agreed to look at my my sketchbooks and you know made drawings over them like with a red magic marker in you know and basically said like uh, you're drawing like an illustrator and that's fine if you want to do that but animation drawing is this other thing it's all about movement and life and, and, and rather than you know the rendering of lights and stuff like that you know so um, but he basically said yeah if you if you want to know how to do this stuff you have to go to CalArts. and at the time I think it was only CalArts, Ringling and Sheridan were like the only real options for animation schools in North America. Um, and so now there's, you know, hundreds uh, uh, but um but I try I got into CalArts and uh, that's when, you know, it really like broke into my understanding even further about how to draw for animation, how to, you know, think about that that sort of thing. But I was really influenced by um, you know, Luxo Jr., the short, the Pixar short uh, that had come out like in the, maybe I want to say like 88 or 89, I think I was still in high school, and I was just like, how did they do that? Like, that's, you know, it it looks so amazing, and and I'm not like a computer person in terms of, you know, that I know how to code or anything about, like, if my computer breaks down, I'm completely lost, Uh, but I really loved the look of computer animation, even back in the day. And, um, so Pixar was always really on my radar and at CalArts, the second year that I was there, uh, ILM had donated a bunch of the, uh, Silicon graphics computers, these like really massive, chunky old, like beasts of computers, uh, to the school. And they were, they had all this gravity around them because they were the computers that they made Terminator 2 and the Abyss, on. Um, And so, um, you know, we could do, you could audition with a storyboard, uh, for a short film to make a film on, one of these computers. And it was interesting because at the time the software was Alias. I don't know if anyone even remembers that software, but, um, it's like, like it was the software that was used for those, those ILM films early back in the day. And I spent so much time like learning Unix just to get around like this, this, you know, uh, this code like coding language um, and learning how to put textures on things and all this kind of stuff that like is not a good use of your time if you want to be an animator. <laughs> um, and I kind of lost that year to that project um, because after that I had I did an internship that following summer uh, with Pacific Data Images uh, who, Got wow. bought up by uh, DreamWorks, um, and you know they made their first movie was was Ants. Uh, if you remember that back in the day, so at the time they were doing mostly like TV commercials and morphing, and all this and morphing was really huge at this time. This is like 1990. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember that?
0: Yeah, um, but they had a small character animation department, uh, and they they just really mentored me into like, okay, now you've learned. About how to use a computer, but the reason we we actually wanted you for the internship was because of your first year 2D animation film, uh, which showed that you know how to like tell a story with with characters and with movement, and uh, and then they showed me like a really good methodology for for 3D animation, but they didn't have any work at the end of of that internship, and that was you know tying back to what we were saying before, uh, that was the summer that Jurassic Park came out so i at that point it's like i had this 30 second long kind of internship film that i made which it was more of like a situation than a film it wasn't really <laughs> a story um and i had my cal art stuff and then really it was like just the timing like being prepared in that sense and then the timing of this uh really disruptive movie coming in and changing the whole industry um and then like you know, they just couldn't get people fast enough. So um, so it was sort of, you know, like getting that break of like right place at the right time, uh, but also, you know, being prepared for it and having done a lot of um, practice and, uh, you know, just developing myself as an animator as much as I could at that point and how to, and how to have a workflow.
2: It totally reminds me of this phrase that you might have heard of before, which is um, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Who mm-hmm. heard that one before? Yeah, so
0: very, in that sense,
2: it's super Yeah, exactly you you had the preparation, you're ready to jump on an opportunity. And as soon as it arrived, you were there at the right place.
0: Yeah,
2: certainly surrounded by the right people. you were in the right town, so to speak, right? Since ILM was across the street, you
0: that was, yeah, I was, well, CalArts was in LA, uh, which was a, definitely a good place for animation. <laughs> um, and, um, not, but 3D animation was bigger in the Bay Area, like up by ILM and, and PDI was in the South Bay. Um, I think back then it was like ILM, PDI, Pixar, all in the Bay Area and Rhythm and Hues down in LA. Those were the four big ones at that time.
2: Still sounds so close together to somebody like me who got their start in Texas. <laughs> I, I'm from Brazil, but like the, by the time I was interested in the industry, I was living in Texas. Okay. And I remember that the industry there, you know, like we I used to host industry events. I ran the Unreal Meetup and stuff like that on the game side. And the industry there had a different energy. It was like, hey, anybody who's made it left you know? Oh, okay. So like we're the leftovers in Texas and we are, we don't have opportunities. So like even sometimes being in the right, at least California, you know, can mm-hmm. be a huge step up, which is why like if let's say international students or something like are picking a spot, like go to places that have the contacts and the connections that you want. That's a little, a little tip. The next big question is, You've worked on many successful animated films, such as *The Spickable Me* three and *The Lorax*. Can you share some of the challenges and the rewards of working on big fi- films like this? Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> um, so, I think. Well, maybe one thing that's an interesting angle on that question, before talking about those specific films, is because um, this would be more for like the animators in your audience. You know, would be. Um, because I spent the first half of my animation career working on visual effects and the second half of my animation career working on character animation in character films. So um, and then I think this actually sort of breaks down how I like to think about animation in general as like physicality and acting. Uh, And if you can marry those two things, then you're, you know, like you're this like powerhouse animator, Um, because if you're doing Creature animation, then it's really all about physicality. You're trying to make um, that elephant that's crushing a car, or the dinosaur that's like attacking, you know, a building or something, look like it has proper weight and all that. But the elephant's not going to have like a change of emotion uh, while it's you know crushing the car. It's not thinking about what it's doing, and it's certainly not changing as a character over the arc of the movie. You know, it's it's just there to be um, sort of like a force of nature, but like Woody and Buzz are absolutely driving the story and they're in conflict with each other. They want different things. Uh, this is coming out in their performance. Um, so I think that the, the challenge at all the ILM stuff, uh, even though now there's more like, you know, 3d characters in live action movies that are driving the story that can happen too, uh, but. When you're doing more creature animation, in that sense, it's all about the physical um, and that's really concrete to get, it's like right or wrong. Uh, Whereas like if you're working at a studio like Pixar, Illumination or DreamWorks, you know, then you're you're working on characters that are really involved in the story. So emotion and performance is is really important. Uh, So I think those are the kind of two major challenges up front. Um, one of the bigger challenges in recent times, I think is, you know, so Minions Rise of Gru was the last film that I directed and it was the, I want to say the fifth film in the, in the franchise, you know, so you're, you're with a franchise film, you're looking to be like, how do you keep this fresh? How do you, you know, how, how are we going to tell a story that, especially with the Minions that has a pretty big following? Uh, of people who love the Minions for who, what they are and what they do and all the stupid things that they do. Um, And so you don't want to disappoint those fans, but you don't want to go back to the well and keep doing the same thing or telling the same types of stories that you have in the past. So um, those are the big challenges there is like, how do you, how can you, um, Take this into new territory that's going to be exciting for people and also not alienate anybody who's never seen a Minions movie before you know so they can come in and and you know get on the train and see what's what's happening and follow the story
2: there's so much interesting stuff to break down in there um first of all i just got a lesson in animation because i hadn't stopped to think about the difference between physicality and performance and um Physicality turns out, now that you've put it into words, is one of the main things that I pay attention to when I'm seeing animations for everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been noticing, you know, like, even if the character model, because I focus more on that, character model can be perfect, perfect textures, little tiny fuzzy hair everywhere, it doesn't matter. If the animation feels weightless and light, it looks super fake, right? creatures jumping and they just look like they're moving a little slow you know things like that or you know like things landing but they don't land with like that like uh, you know like bounce that they do right. and and like you know even fat jiggling i teach a, a workshop and i'm always like guys gravity like even in the t-pose like we, we just want to add a little bit of that like little bit of like pull downwards you know
0: um i do agree though like with you like it's funny because w- when you're saying like you know, you see the fat jiggling on something like when, when something big, like takes a, takes a step, you know, an animator is going to look at that and go like, that's amazing. Like how much detail, you know, they got into it. But a person who's not an animator is just going to be like, yeah, that's there. (laughs) They're, they're not going to get so blown away by the nuance, you know? Um, they're just gonna, like all, all you did with all that hard work is like you, you, Bought there, you earned their suspension of disbelief that there's a dinosaur in that shot, you know. Um, and if you don't do that, uh, then anything else that happens is like lost, you know. And if it's if you're animating Woody and Buzz and the weight looks wrong, then no matter how great the lip sync and the facial performances and all that kind of stuff, it's like something's weird. There's like an uncanny valley about it, you know. Um, but I mean, like I would say the common reasons why. Uh, Weight and physicality doesn't get worked out is because you know the animator is just not thinking about it or maybe doesn't have enough um, uh, like uh, practice or skill in the in those areas and, th- and some things can just really be like unintuitive like even the way that like you take a footstep and like where where your the weight of your hips are over a foot um, you know when you lift up your left foot hundred percent of your weight has to be on your on your um, right leg. But if it's not, if only 50% of your weight is on your right leg, then it it feels weightless, you know, and it's a really simple thing. It's like the most important thing in physicality, I think. But um, the way that I like to think about physicality versus acting in general is like language, you know, where you, you can learn grammar, you can learn about Verbs and nouns and all this kind of stuff, you know, and how to um, conjugate verbs and everything, uh, and to just be able to speak in a coherent way that people can understand you, it's important to know that. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to say anything beautiful or say anything important, you know. Uh, but you need it just to say anything. So, so physicality is really important just to be able to communicate in in performance, and then you're taking, you know squash and stretch anticipation follow through all those all that grammar uh and then you're saying something important with it in your in your performance um so you know that's something i think like when you're early on and this is maybe kind of jumping all over the place but when you're really early in your animation journey um you know you're learning like you can see a student who's learned just learned anticipation because everything is anticipated really broadly uh, and You have to know that until you can forget it, until you can integrate it, uh, until you can be fluent enough in the language to where you're not thinking, you know, verb, adjective, noun, you're just talking, you know, it's like, that's what fluency is, right? So um, animation is the same. You got all those building blocks and you can just go.
2: That is such a neat way to put it. uh, I like the idea of not having to think about it and just having it be part of your, like, almost like natural, right, mm-hmm. it naturally happens. Um, is it a big part of the pipeline to, like, I, I know some animators that don't record themselves doing the action first of the of whatever they're trying to animate, would you say it's like a big part of the pipeline to get some recordings beforehand?
0: I didn't start doing it until maybe like six or seven years into animating, and then made a huge difference um i think it helps too if you like i mean i would never like act in front of people because that would terrify me uh (laughs) but if i do it for myself like with a with a um video camera uh then i just suddenly become aware of like okay so a classic animation exercise that people do is like a character lifting a heavy object and um And then uh, if you film yourself, you might look that, you know, as you bend down to pick up the heavy object, you like pull up your, your pant leg a little bit to, you know what I mean? To give a little bit of slack in your pants so you can bend your, your, your knees easier. And it's a completely unconscious gesture, but then you see it in the video and you're like, oh, there's that thing. And if you only work out of your head, it's like you sort of like distill it down to the most basic movements and you miss all this stuff that happens in real life. Um, you know, like a, the way your eye darts when you think about something, or any of these types of things that you can pull into the performance and make it and make it better. So I just tend to think like whatever helps your process is is the best. And I mean, I've seen you know um, some animators do video reference where it's like the video reference isn't going to help you here because you know you, maybe they were so nervous to do the video reference that the The performance that they did is is stiff, and you don't want to emulate that. Yeah. Um, maybe it's good to go get somebody else who's really like, likes really extroverted, and likes to you know uh, have a lot of attention on them, um, do that type of thing, and they can they can be good at it. Um, but like really early on, in the early days of my working, it was still so close to hand drawn animation being ubiquitous that um, doing thumbnail drawings was the way people were working a lot of stuff out uh and then trying to get those key poses you know from like your drawings but in the computer
2: That is fantastic so everybody who's listening it's official reference is not cheating have you ever heard that before
0: oh i've never heard that before no, I think it's totally oh, essential
2: maybe it's because i'm a teacher um you know <laughs> i'll be like hey what's your reference i don't need the reference i know how to draw this from my memory and i'm like hey bet you don't let's see (laughs) you know uh and it's even a lesson i had to learn you know there's a there was a little bit of arrogance there when it came to me you know i was like um, my parents put me in a drawing class when i was a teenager and i was like um, i want to come out of this drawing class i don't want to take it anymore because uh, they just keep me they make me draw from pictures you know they're just making me do animals and stuff from pictures and stuff And I don't want to do that. I want to be a concept artist and do stuff from my own imagination. And so my parents go in to complain, which was super embarrassing, right? Uh, Because just like me, they didn't know any better. And then uh, the teacher goes, okay. He puts down a piece of paper in front of me and he goes, draw a rhino. And I go and I draw a rhino and he's like, okay, that looks like a rhino, as in like a cartoon rhino, something that we all can recognize as a rhinoceros, right? That being said, and he pulls up a picture, like from one of his encyclopedias, and he goes, this is what a rhino actually looks like, you know, you literally missed every nuance and part of the anatomy of this rhino, even the eyelashes, you know, and things like that. And Mm. until you have a perfect library in your brain, like if you're a super genius, maybe you already have it, but until you have a perfect library in your brain of what things look like, how they move, how they are, all their parts, use reference, and, you know, there's been a lot of discourse on social media over the years of me growing up and you know even nowadays of reference being cheating, and also the digital art is not real art, but that's like a whole other thing right and have you ever heard of people saying that if the computer if you're using a computer, the computer is doing it for you <laughs>
0: well that, I mean that's always been the case like whenever you know maybe less and less, but I remember back in the Pixar days, somebody would be like, "Oh, you do computer animation so so, does the computer do the animation for you? you know, um, like it's some sort of automatic thing? It's like, well, maybe maybe someday, but not right now. And um, but the the cheating reference thing, yeah, I think the more that I think about it, the more I think I really disagree with that as as cheating. Um, the, but I think that you have to you have to like make it your own in some ways. So here's just is a little story. This is again, talking about elephants. Uh, from Jumanji, um, you know, we went to the San Francisco Zoo to study how they move, and you know, to like do the research on that. And um, I shot lots of you know video of like elephants walking around, and I was able to make like a little edit of it so it would loop on my computer like a probably like twenty-seven frame walk cycle or whatever of, of an elephant. And I was animating the elephant to try to like make it look like you know, and learn like what's the pattern of the footsteps, what happens to the shoulder blade when the when the when the weight goes on, all that kind of stuff. And you know, I was like having a really hard time with it because I was learning what it was. And then at one point, and this and this would I think this is this is where it gets to be cheating, is like I tried just to kind of learn better. I tried rotoscoping one. So I put it, like, on, on the background and just tried to animate it. And then that one was the worst of the, you know, walk cycles that I had done. Um, but what helped with that all that stuff about doing, like, 20 or 30 different walk cycles was that, like, I had learned in the same way that you learned how to draw the, the rhinoceros from looking at it. Like, I had learned how that elephant moves. So then you throw all that stuff away and you do one of your own. And now you're just using all the stuff that you know. And then this is where exaggeration, which is like a really important principle of animation comes into play because the rotoscoped version, and this is a big problem, I think, with rotoscope in general, it's like a facility of, um, movement and life. It's not life, you know? So it's almost like taking a photocopy of a painting. It's not like a painting, especially if it's like an old black and white, you know, Xerox machine or something. Um, but if you, look at a photo, and then you try to draw it, you're going to give something special to it, you're going to push the contrast of the light, and you're going to push the shapes and exaggerate some of the forms, uh, unless you're going for absolutely photorealism. But I think with with animation, you're trying to create, you know, the illusion of life into that creature. So you have to go a little bit further than life usually does to compensate for the fact that there is no life there. You know, there's it's just a, a, a wireframe mesh with like a skeletal rig inside of it. Um, and you're trying to create that illusion. So the exaggeration on top of what you've studied as reference, I think is the important thing.
2: That's super awesome. Looks like Josh is here. Let me let Josh oh, great.
1: Hey, Kyle, pleasure to meet you. Uh, I'm Joshua Singh. I'm currently at Marvel. Uh, okay, uh, and uh, I'm an art director. I've been working in video games for about Uh, 18 years now and i've always been curious about the correlation between film and video games and as technology gets better and better things are becoming i see a convergence happening uh, Mm -hmm. in, in in craft and technology and even in storytelling but what i'm really curious is the behind the scenes like uh the cultures like the culture of game dev and the culture of film like there's a lot of things going on in game development right now and I'm sure people who work in, in Hollywood have similar stories, um, but I, I, I'm really curious as to, you know, being a creative, a, a professional creative in Hollywood, um, if, if we've gone through some of the same things,
0: um, you know, both good and bad. So I'm okay. interested in talking about that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I mean, I've, I worked a little bit in games in the very beginning of my career, but um but then went more you know towards feature films, so it's I think the, the game industry culture has certainly evolved and progressed a lot since since what I knew it has what what was that transition like if you don't mind me asking from going from games to film um in the in the beginning it was i mean it was exciting because the I would say that games back then while they were i mean i i was, I've always played video games and still love video games. Um but the now it's getting harder and harder to tell the difference between like a cutscene, you know, and uh or even like I like so I love Elden Ring. It's one of my favorite games. Yeah, it's a good one. And I just can't believe how good the surfacing is in this real-time game. You know, it's it or the the way that like the light will just like reflect across um something. It's it's just mind-blowing because I had done games animation on the Amiga on D paint animator doing like pixel uh, Deep animator. Paint animator. That's awesome. Yeah. I know that, that was like my first <laughs> job ever. And so, um, so, you know, it's like, I think if that is in, you know, I love like, um, really low res pixel animation now, but like in a kind of nostalgic way, you know? Um, and I think it can be cool. Like what you can create with such limited amounts of, of, uh, materials. Um, but you wouldn't look at that and be like, oh, that's that instantly translates to to feature films. Um, so, you know, I was telling Anna, like while I was working on that game on on the Amiga uh, across the parking lot, they were making Jurassic Park. And that, and that was like very different level of you know production values. So, so
1: um, you know. At, at Marvel, you know, even on the video game side, we're always just like story, 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 um, and it's something that across the board, like everywhere I've ever worked, we're always trying to pull a story out of these pieces. Um, working on all these different productions, what have you found? Like, have you found a method to the madness of trying to pull some heart out of out of all these pieces that you're get, that you're given to you as a director, like? I know it's a very vague question, but like, do you have a methodology that you sort of approach to, to find the soul of a sort of a story?
0: I think maybe, I don't know if I'd call it a methodology, but more like an important, um, like a North Star that you try to follow. You know, in storytelling is, I think for me, the most important one is is a real strong sense of rooting interest from the audience um, in the sense that they... You know, they have to have something that they want to have happen to a character or for a character or even like they don't want a character to succeed because that character has like bad motivations or bad values or something like that. Like that's rooting interest, you know, like so now I'm watching the film and I, I am in want of something. So um my favorite example of all time is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, because the rooting interest in that film is so brilliant because he manipulates you so so strongly. So you're following the main character, uh, and this is going to be spoilers for Psycho. Uh,
1: <laughs> it's but, been uh, like what, sixty years? I'm I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, so yeah,
0: <laughs> it's pretty, the gig is up. But um, but you're following um the main character. I think her name's Marion and you know she steals some money from her boss because she wants to be with her lover and you know they don't have any money and it's the only way they're going to survive so she steals this money and she you know she leaves town and she goes to try to meet him in california from arizona and even though she's done something wrong he has framed it in this way hitchcock has framed it in this way to where you're rooting for her you know like she almost gets caught by her boss uh, she almost gets caught by the police. All these things start to happen in her journey, where she almost gets caught, and every time it happens, the more you're like, "Oh no, she's going to get caught," and you don't want her to get caught, you know. Um, and then she just pulls over because it's raining, and she's almost, you know, to meet her lover, and she's almost finished her her journey, but it's raining too hard. She pulls over and stays at this motel, and then you know what happens? She gets she gets killed, and it's like the midpoint of the movie, and it was the first time ever like a protagonist uh, got killed halfway through the movie. And so there's like this vacuum of like, well, where's my rooting interest now? And your rooting interest actually goes to her killer. Norman Bates. you're hoping that he doesn't get caught. Oh, you know? no. And so- it's like, you, you think about how 180 degrees your, your values and your loyalty to the characters in this story have changed because the director was so masterful at manipulating your rooting interest, you know? Um, so I think that that's probably the biggest one is like like what do I want to have happen in this story? So,
1: so I mean, talking about rooting rooting for a bad guy, I mean, is is, is there a little bit of that methodology when you approach someone
0: like Gru? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because like you with with Gru, especially like adult Gru, because kid Gru, you know, like you can excuse anything for like a, yeah. what an 11 year old one adult grew. It's like, it was always trying to find that balance between, um, making him bad, but knowing that he's not really bad, you Mm know? Um, so, you know, like, especially in the first despicable me, it's like, he's a bad guy. He's a villain, but he can't be so bad that you don't want him to adopt three girls, you know? That
1: see, if someone came, like, if I read that script, like, let's say minions didn't exist. It's like the fresh, it's like, Hey we have a kid's movie about a supervillain who adopts three girls and it's like, okay, well, how, how is he a supervillain? Like, where's the line? Right? Like how bad is he? Does he just, is he, is he Robin hood? Does he like steal from the rich? Is he breaking the law or is he like really like evil? Like he like he like rejoices, <laughs> you know? Um, so like, I don't know, like how, where, where do you think? Like, I mean, I, I feel as though like there are some bad things we can make characters do that like we're that us as audience are like, yeah, I'd do that. Like I mean like Thanos, right? Like like, <laughs> like, like if you watch Endgame, everyone's like, you know, in traffic, like, man, Thanos was right, man. If I could snap right now, I would <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, But like, you know, how 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 do you approach that? How do you approach taking somebody with sort of uh shady shady motivations and make them affable?
0: Yeah, I think well I mean like in the case with Groove specifically It's knowing that, you know, like you look at what Gru, like if we really like do like a, like a psychoanalyst on, on, on Gru, you know, like his mom didn't like him. You know, she was like abusive to him, always criticizing him. Um, And. You know, so he's always trying to live up to to what she wants and he's and she, she's never happy. Um, you know, he's alone. He's surrounded by these minions. Uh, he, his idea of being bad is basically like like winning trophies, like stealing the moon. You know, I'm going to see something so big that people will, he just wants people to like him. You know, that's what's at the, at the base of all this. And he only adopts the girls as a means to sort of get that goal across. So he can like get the the shrink ray from, from Vector and all that kind of stuff. But the, you know, them selling Girl Scout cookies and really convoluted way to like solve a problem. Um, But in the process of adopting these girls, he, they love him for who he is. So he doesn't have to like do anything more. So when he finally goes and gets to the moon, it's like, I don't, I don't need this. You know, I have like, now I have what I need. So it's sort of like you, in this particular story, we're showing you like this guy has, his motivations for being bad are because he's kind of wounded and he, his wounds are healed through his relationship with these girls. Um, now it's interesting because then uh, one TV series that I love is succession. Um, and everyone is bad in succession. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're like, they really have like bad motivations for things. And it was interesting that I was watching this thinking like, why, who am I rooting for here? I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I just want to find out how this all <laughs> happens, you know? Um, but you know, one, a very popular, um, device uh that came out of that book save the cat is like you know you want you want a character to be likable to the audience um you know then they they do something good they they have a save the cat moment sometimes it's literally saving a cat sometimes it's doing something nice so it's like oh that guy is not really a bad guy you know Um, but in succession it's almost like the way that they spun that was that at different points in the story the different characters become the cat themselves that need saving, you know, and it's like, you start to, even though they're not doing something good, you start to really like, feel really bad for them to be treated that way by their brother or their father. Or something yeah. Like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, like, it's really different ways to like twist some of these um, devices so that you can use them in like an original way.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, I, there's an old show, like from the, from like the nineties, you know, married with children, married with children. Right. And mm-hmm. married with children was like, you know, it's, it's an old show, Anna. So it's like, it was about this horrible family, right. This horrible family. But, uh, but you liked them because they were struggling. But at the same time, like, I think there's an episode where like someone from the outside comes in and starts beating up on Bud, the little brother, who's a total jerk. But they're like, that's – he's like, no one can do that but me, right? It's like I, I'll, only I can beat up on Bud, my little brother. You, you're not allowed to. So when you set up that, this sort of like – this like sort of bubble of relationships, you know, and I, I haven't seen Succession. But like I totally understand it's where it's like, yeah, it, they're horrible, but they do need saving. And it's like, OK, he saved them. Or, you know what I mean? And then it's like, oh, yeah, like you said, the, the save the cat moment. I really like that. Um, and I really like what you said about, you know, uh, grew. Doing crimes because he just wants to be accepted. And once he's accepted, he doesn't really need to do crime anymore. Like, yeah. I think the, the motivation for what, whereas, like, Norman Bates, like, you know, his motivation is what? Like, he's, approval from his oh, dead early. mother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I,
2: I would say, like, if you humanize the character, it goes a long way. If you let us relate to him by making him flawed, giving him mm-hmm. a weak spot, you know. Um, that's why it's so hard to relate and why psychopaths are so scary, right? It's difficult mm-hmm. to relate to somebody who doesn't operate in the way that like 99% of us do. And that yeah. was makes them in, unpredictable and difficult to understand, you know, Uh, Like Norman Bates, I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be his character, was that he was literally Psycho, that's the name of the movie, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) But somebody like Gru that has a soft side, um, you know, and bringing those little girls in to expose that soft side, like that goes a long way to humanize this character. By the way, I know you mentioned something about like if somebody brought in the script. I think it's so nice to mess with our expectations of what it means to be bad, and good and evil, Mm -hmm. like putting together a villain that like only dresses in like black and gray, you know, and then putting him with three little girls and like now he's dealing with like stuffed animals and ponies and stuff. Like that is such a cool way to like just get rid of our expectations and put two things that don't go together together into like a brand new kind of idea. Right. Yeah. I think that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's another real key one that you're mentioning is like, how do you subvert expectations, you know, and it can be, on a macro storytelling way, but it can also be like, even in like a gag in a shot, you know, about how, like you, you set something up, a a, a joke, so that it's going to go this way and you can see it coming, but then you, you make a left turn, like right before that. And it's something else. I think it becomes that much more funny because it's like, I, I didn't see that coming, you know? So, um, kind of zigzagging like that, I think is really important in storytelling as well.
2: Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Let's say I know nothing about storytelling. Like, and Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book today. Um, What would be the one advice you would give me?
0: Oh wow. Um, I mean, I a lot of what I learned about storytelling is is by like watching a lot of movies. That like you get you have your favorite movie, you watch it, you're you're enjoying it, and. I think you don't think about what's working about it you know you see something that's not working a bad movie and you can start to like understand what's not working about it um somehow like i think the things that aren't working speak louder than what's what is working uh but what i started to do um well i started teaching animation and you know, animation always leads into story because you're thinking about, like, where does your shot fit into the film and all that kind of stuff. And I started to just, like, layer in, uh, like, visual storytelling or, um, you know, layout, cinematography, things like this, things that I was interested in but wanted to learn more about. And so it was sort of like by trying to explain it to somebody or trying to explain why does this sequence work in this in this film, um, you start to understand like what's under the hood it's like understanding the engine of it you know uh and taking it apart that way so this is like the first idea that comes to mind if you're thinking about like i'm in a bubble and there's i'm not going to go to school i don't have like um you know somebody who i'm working with who's like a director or like a head of story or something like that that's that's helping me instruct that i have to figure this out on my own Um, i would just start by like looking at what you really love uh, and it can be a story in a game, it can be a story in a, in a movie or, or a comic or anything. Um, and then try to like explain what the characters want, uh, what are the obstacles for that character getting that thing. Um, you know, I mean, that's like I think that's why it's so funny because like so many of the really s- stories that really connect with people, they're all about that. It's like a character has a drive and there's obstacles. you know, it's like, well, I want to tell a different story and it's like but isn't that like what our life is it's like we have things we want and then we have the obstacles that we come into contact with so when you watch a good movie even if it's taking place like in middle earth or in a galaxy far far away or something like that you're still like those are my issues like i want to you know to do this thing in my life and i'm having these obstacles just like these characters are and when you see how they overcome them it's like Joseph Campbell always says, it's like equipment for living, you know, like a good story is equipment for living. And that's, mm. that's why I think you see so much of the same stuff.
2: Ringley Pre-College is seeking visionary VR students with the story and drive to succeed. Do you see yourself creating a three-dimensional, computer-generated virtual reality environment where users can be immersed within your imagined or simulated worlds? Is it games, training, or emotional sport? What inspires you to do this work? If this describes you, we want to hear your story. What excites you about these possibilities? Submit your 500-word story in writing or video by March 3rd, to mmurphy at c.ringling.edu. Three selected entries will be awarded $1,000 each towards pre-college 2023 tuition. One selected entry will be awarded a full scholarship to pre-college 2023. In accepting the award, you fully agree to enroll in the virtual reality immersion. Visit www.wringling.edu precollege and click on connect with us to book an online info session. And make sure to submit your written or video story as described above. Back to our programming.
0: I think um, having a sense of curiosity, I think has been if I was to look back on like one thing that helped me uh, that wasn't like a conscious thing of like, this is going to make me successful. Uh, but I think like a lot of things that have worked out for me in animation, uh, came out of a sense of curiosity because, um, you know, like when I, when I was started teaching, I wanted to, you know, learn more about visual storytelling, cinematography. So I started teaching that when when I was living in Paris and, and despicable me came to Paris to be made there. Um, I was originally offered an animation supervisor role on that project, but I had done that before already. And so, for me, I was like, "Well, is there a growing edge there?" And you know, even though I hadn't formally done layout, I was really sure I could be the head of layout on that on that film, and was able to convince the producers to you know give me a shot at it. And um, and so now I'm able to work in animation movies but in this completely different capacity uh and that was what got you know the attention of my producer to say like hey do you want to direct a short film and i was like oh yeah that sounds that sounds like i could learn a lot doing that you know so it's i think a lot of it was just like um trying to go more and more into spaces that you don't know that you're interested in uh i think that can really be a way to lead you to a, a a good place of you know like where you you grow you develop and you're doing the kind of work you want to do. What is what is layout? So layout is based like I guess the way it would translate in, in so in, in live action you have a director of photography and the director of photography basically uh, is in charge of like you know what the picture looks like like the camera angles and the lighting right. In animation, that job typically gets divided between the head of layout and the and the lighting supervisor. And the head of layout is dealing with all the everything that's like, you know, what what lenses you're using, what kind of shot it is, uh, if it's a, what, like how the camera moves through space, and then how the characters move in that space as well. And then the lighting supervisor is like working often with the layout supervisor to uh, say like, okay, and, and these, this rim light's going to happen here. These shadows are going to be here. Uh, this shot's all about the shadow on the wall, which you're not going to see until lighting happens, things like that. So you're, you know, you're composing the shot, but you're also getting a lot into, into visual storytelling. Mm. Like a really simple one is like, you want to feel, Uh, empathy for a character, you want to feel bad for a character, you know, doing a down shot on them is going to make them look vulnerable and small. You want a character to be really big and intimidating, doing an upshot is going to make them look big and scary. That's, like, really super ABCs. Um, But then, like, taking that kind of film language, like, to a really, really far degree to where you can see, like, people analyzing um, cinema and and being like, um, you know, this this character uh feels like they're in prison in their life and the shadow of like bars is on their their body but it's not really bars it's like symbolically bars like they're in a prison um like things like that so that's visual storytelling and it can be subconscious but it can be really powerful if it's done right awesome That's a, yeah, if if someone was good at that, I'd
1: have faith in them being a director. Mm -hmm. That's like, that feels like the majority of directing, you know, if I'm being honest, it's like, once you got the layouts in, you basically can see how the film's going to work and then you're working on, it seems like the nuance of acting and, and, you know, blocking out and stuff like that of of the actual movement. But dude, that's awesome. Thanks Kyle. That's awesome.
2: Uh, I love what you said about learning, like it is so important to always be learning and to be curious, right? Um, there are people that navigate this industry with a very harsh unwillingness to learn, adapt, and, you know, continue seeking out that knowledge. People who are like my way or the highway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I learned it this way in 1992, so it's still the, the correct way to do this. Um, do you have any advice for folks that might feel that way?
0: Well, I think, I mean there's there's another i think it's important to say like let's say that somebody loves animation and that's all they want to do is animation um i don't think there's anything wrong with that And you can become like an amazing you know animator it's like maybe all you want to do is play basketball you know you never want to coach you know what i mean like you're just going to be like a great basketball player We're going to be known for um and in animation you don't have the Time frame of like, you know, your body's going to get too old to like perform in the court. So you can certainly have a much longer career, uh, that way. So, I, so I would say like, um, there's, it's not that there's not virtue in that. Um, but I would say like within that sphere, um, being open to other ways you can, you can approach the process, um. And maybe what it's about is like not so much even like the methodology, because maybe you get really used to the way that you want to animate, um, but the way like other ideas, like other other ways you can like get emotion across, you know, other ways you can uh, express yourself through a character. Uh, but maybe what happens when a software, like a mainstream software trend, changes and now certain tools that you're used to are no longer being supported in that software or by that studio. Um, you know, because like there's a whole, there's a brand new Mm -hmm. thing. There's always like something new.
3: Um,
0: I think that having an open mind to the fact of like, okay, I'm going to lose some things that I got used to, but that's going to like break my methodology a little bit and something might come out of it. That's good. Like a new way of doing it. That's good. Um, because, I mean, ultimately, you can't like hang on to things that are changing. Uh, you're just going to be left behind. You know that's that's mm-hmm. that's just the reality of it.
1: That's absolutely true in games as well. Like we've we've Anna and I have talked about this before, where the the willingness to be curious and ever learning because there's always going to be a new software. There's always mm-hmm. going to be some new fancy thing. But the fundamentals really never change. You know, like as long as you know your fundamentals and as long as you know the right questions to ask, um, you can make that software do what you want it to do.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: Speaking of knowing the fundamentals, what are the most important skills you think it takes to be an animator?
0: I think for an animator, um, and if it's, again, it's it depends like if you wanted to be an animator like on fully animated feature films or you want to do like main characters that are driving the story. Um, I think it's really all about uh, the biggest thing you're trying to do, you think about rooting interest with storytelling. So with animation characters, you want to create empathy for that character from the audience. Uh, you want to make me as the audience, me, the audience, uh, forget, that I'm watching a, an animated character, and that, and and to think I'm watching a character who wants this or that in their life. They're trying; they're, they want something to happen. They're they're striving for something. Uh, I hope they get it, you know. And what's going to make you believe in that? Um, and I think like trying to create performances that make me feel, you know, f- for them. And it doesn't have to be. It can be so subtle. It can be like an eye dart uh, can show like so much depth to a character. It doesn't have to be moving. All over the place to like be good, you know. Um, so that's like that's the like the brass ring or the like the Mount Everest of animation is like creating, you know, like a really beautiful performance. Uh, Mark Walsh uh, is an animator at Pixar who did um, the the scenes in um, uh, Finding Nemo, and Dory uh, is talking about like how important it is that when she's with. Um, the other characters. And I can't forget the, the father Marlin? character. Um, it's you know, Marlin
2: or Marlin, right? Marlin. Yes. Thank Marlin. you. <laughs> uh,
0: and she says, when I'm with you, I remember, you know, and like, like, it's such like a moving scene, like to cry when you see this, like oh. it's, and it's because this fish is like feeling this really important, you know, connection. And, um, and it's interesting. Cause he, uh, he told a really inspiring story about how, when he animated this, series of shots he basically like locked himself up in his room at at the studio and got a bunch of old photos of like family and and loved ones and and like went down this like you know like it's like a method actor you know like Mm. um got into the headspace of what dory's feeling about remembering like important things and then just channeling all that so you don't tend to think about animators as like doing this sort of method acting like this, you think of them being like really good at, at Maya or, or Blender or something like that, you know? Um, which is important, because you that's like how you get around, but, um, but it's not what the thing is, you know? And, uh, and so I think, I think the best way to think about an animator is that they're an actor, and like you have to be a good actor. And so studying things that actors study, you know? Even improv classes are, are great. Uh, yeah. just get into, into the space of, you know, coming up with stuff, feeling, feeling things in your body and then like, uh, channeling them into your character. That's so funny. Cause every animator I've
1: ever known has either been like, they could have been a stand-up comedian or they all do martial arts. Like they're mm. all like, they're all like MMA dudes with like, like all tatted <laughs> up and everything. And, um, but they are, they, they're all really good storytellers and they're good actors you know, in, in order to convey that storytelling, in order to convey that emotion, do you think it's worth it for every artist to like pers- – this is going to be a, like a philosophical thing. Like like pursuing a, a full life and having as many experiences as you can. Like I know especially in games, a lot of us get stuck to our computers and we live vicariously. Um, hmm. But uh, what I love about animators, like I was talking about they're stand-up comedians, they're, 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 they're athletes. They're always getting like real – real life to interject, like, what do you do? And I mean, mean, what, 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 what do you do to sort of like keep that, to stay in touch with reality so you can sort of bring that, that, uh, what did Disney call it? The imitation of life. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, like what, 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 what kind of experiences have you, have you had that, that bring that authenticity to your animation?
0: I mean, it can be a lot of it is like, um, just like watching people, you know, uh, especially for an animator, like that's essential um, seeing like the body language or like seeing, you know, like I, I did a lot of traveling and like seeing the body language of people in different places. Um, and, um, you know, how, how does somebody like in Taiwan, um, and it might not necessarily be because they're in Taiwan, but it's like, um, it's just because this story took place there. Like I, I was, uh, teaching and I had a microphone, uh, and the microphone wasn't working, but I didn't know that. And so I'm just talking and um, there was this gentleman who was there to like, give me the properly working microphone. And it took me a while to notice, notice him because it was dark. There's a spotlight on me. I'm like my head's all in the the class. And um, he, on my peripheral, he was like just timidly like wanting to offer me the microphone, but because he was so respectful uh, of what I was doing he didn't want to interrupt me and so finally he just like covered his eyes <laughs> and he like held them <laughs> up and that's when I when I noticed him you know and um and I felt so bad like because he was clearly so uncomfortable here you know uh but I'd never seen that gesture anywhere before you know what I mean yeah. and it's it's a very broad gesture I never had to use it in my in my work, but I was like, "Wow, that's that's amazing!" Like like people are doing incredible things all the time yeah. that are um, very expressive and very emotional uh, without them even knowing it. You know, like um, he,
1: like he didn't want to interrupt you, and it was like such a social sort of faux pas or whatever that he just he's just like, but I have to give him the mic, so he just like that's like almost like he yeah, closes his like, eyes and just
0: jumps in, like the shame that he was feeling for like <laughs> oh my gosh you know, and it would be, like, the kind of thing where, like, in the United States, someone would be, like, here, like, just hand you the thing and interrupt you, you know, Um, and it's, it's, so, it's not so much about, like, what you get from culture to culture, although there are different types of, I mean, because there's different, like, hand gestures that, you know, means peace in one culture, and it means something else in another culture, you know, so it's, it's, like, you take that to, like, how people move in their bodies, you know, like, what, like, uh, and then you add, like, maybe they're extroverted, maybe they're introverted, maybe they're really uh, uncomfortable. Like, if, you, if you're if you walking like this, you know, versus if you're walking like this, like, that's going to communicate completely different things. So I think you just, like, watch all that stuff and you start to build, like, um, sort of like an archive of gestures, you know, mm-hmm. from what you see people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely if you are, if you're at home all the time and, you know, like, if you if you're only watching animation movies to get ideas for animation then you're only going to get ideas of things that have been done already yeah um i would even say at least take a first step of just like watch live action movies with the sound down and see how some of your favorite actors do things you know like how like reese witherspoon for me like the way she acts with her eyes Like it's it's amazing. Like she gets so much uh, communication out just through the way her eyes move around and her her eyebrows, which are just like wild, like how how the range of movement she has in them. Um, So I like I use that when I'm teaching, like, look at this scene, like, look how much she's getting the point across without saying anything that she's uncomfortable here or she's got an idea or you know she doesn't have to put her finger up or scratch the back of her head to show that she's thinking yeah
2: uh, <laughs> i tell this joke all the time that like game developers game designers are all recycling each other's ideas because they're getting all their inspiration from each other so like oh you know what groundbreaking idea another another world war Two game <laughs> You know, or another game that takes place mostly in sci-fi hallways, you know, (laughs) uh, and things like that. And students pitch them to me all the time when they're trying to work on their thesis projects. And I'm like, what makes your sci-fi hallway different than everybody else's, you know? And they're like, well, mine has an alien in it. I'm not sure. That's you should. You should go outside. You should go to the zoo, the museum, read a book about something unrelated, you know, and mm. start sourcing your ideas somewhere a little different from the real worlds, right?
3: Hundred yeah, percent.
2: Every single podcast, I'm going to bring up sci-fi hallways. It's like my. <laughs>
3: <that's> what,
1: <laughs> but they're so that's easy, that's easy to make,
3: Anna.
1: <laughs> Kyle, I had a question. Because you you brought up the, you brought up the, like, hand behind the thing and the, like, so have you seen, have you seen the TikTok kids that, like, they talk, like, in the animated, like, (laughs) have you seen that? I I,
0: I might have seen one or two. Yeah. It's,
1: like, it's, like, really cringy. No offense to anybody that, like, does that and makes a living off of it. But, like, I can't take it. (laughs) Because they're. But like some of them are actually really good. They play them in like fast motion or at speed. I don't know what they're doing, but they've got like they're making their eyes like oh. Anyway, my kids have started doing that to me, and I, <laughs> and I, can't, I can't. I can't take it. They're like, Dad, uh, I had a question. I'm like, Ah, oh, stop.
2: <laughs> there, there are kids that like idle, like their Overwatch characters, just idling. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're
1: just like idling. seen <laughs> that. Yeah. What if that's, what if those are the people you watch, right? Like, and then it just finds you <laughs> well, I mean,
0: like to their credit, that's like a really good, like they, they've, they've studied that movement and they can actually like reproduce it in their own body. So it's mm. that's, that's like, I, it's like I, the, it's like the opposite of what an animator is trying to do. So.
1: <laughs> As I am saying, Kyle, that's the future. Like in the future, yeah. everyone's just going to move like that. And then you'll go to get real life reference and it's going to be bad animation, <laughs> which finds its way into good animation It's just a a vicious cycle.
2: (laughs) So speaking of going elsewhere for inspiration, uh, Josh, I don't know if you know this, but Kyle is an amazing dungeon master in (laughs) (laughs) Um, D&D. So I have put together quite a few questions when it comes to Your relationship to Dungeons and Dragons and your love for, you know, it it all ties together so well. Love Mm -hmm. for storytelling, love for acting, understanding a character's desires, motivations, and the obstacles they go through. That's D&D right there, you know. So uh, tell us a little bit about, like, your passion for D&D and how that came to be.
0: Uh, I started playing D&D when I was maybe, like, 11 or 12. Um, So this is, like, in the 80s like Stranger Things era of Dungeons & Dragons, and um, the, um, aside from not really knowing how to play the game in the beginning because, like, the rules were especially complicated back in the day, um, but I was very inspired by first of all, the art. Uh, So there's a drawing in the players, the original uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Players Handbook by David Sutherland called The Paladin in Hell, um, which, like, made such a huge impression on me. And um, the, uh, you know, like, why is why is that paladin in hell? What's he, what's he trying to do? What's, you know, like all the story behind it. So it's a really great storytelling image. Um, But when I was young, uh, so I used to spend a lot of time in video game arcades uh, after school. And I became um, friends with one of the uh, the guys who was like worked at the video game arcade, and he would like open up the machines and, and give me free credits and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he he was a young guy He was like a high school student, uh, and you know we started talking about Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was because of Dragon's Lair the, that mm-hmm. the, Don Bluth, yeah, that game, yeah, was out. And um, and then he was like, "Well, I DM, and I will, you know, I'll." take you on an adventure and like we'll sit in the food court and and play D D in the mall <laughs> and so uh, and he did like all the voices of these different characters and for me it was like i was playing with you know he was probably like four years older than me um but all the kids that i was playing with my own age like we didn't know how to do that kind of stuff so but this this guy like knew how to play dungeons and dragons he was doing these voices and i was so transported uh while playing um that that those are like the early kind of roots of it um and it ki- I kind of fell to the wayside for a while. Uh, and then it came up again probably about five years ago. Um, and uh, my wife and I started playing Dungeons and Dragons together. Um, and then we got a group of, like, Illumination folks. We were living in L.A. for, for a period. And a group of people that worked uh, at Illumination and some of her friends, we started to get, like, this massive um, campaign going. Um, and everybody was, like super into their characters doing the voices and um my wife and i were like co dungeon mastering this de- de- ending this this thing so what was cool about it from like seeing it from a different perspective like now i've like worked on movies and this sort of thing i'm like oh my gosh this is like directing a movie you know because uh i've I, i've never done a homebrew i've only done like um written material which is like taking a script and realizing it in the way that you would as as a director um but what's great about it is that the it's alive because like the players there are you know doing what they would do as 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 characters um and they're throwing you curveballs all the time uh you know so even like let's say somebody wants to split the party and like you know the rogue goes off and does something completely on their own uh and everyone else is doing their thing so from a director I'm like oh this is a great opportunity to do parallel action, you know. And so I'll I'll stay with his story for a while and just try to find like a cliffhanger and then pause and be like meanwhile and then go back over to the other players. Oh my gosh. And like you try to keep it so like the people who aren't in the focus of the story like want to know what's gonna happen over there. So as much as like you're happy to be back with with your story, you're like, but wait, what's going on with the rogue over there? Like are they gonna die or something? Um so that you know there's it's like really great uh it's sort of like improv for directors, mm-hmm. I guess, you know? um, But there's also been some great opportunities where, um, you know, if I'm, like, I'm developing a lot of my own content right now, my own my own stuff, and there's a character that I'm trying to figure out how to write. Uh, and so I was invited to play d and in Portland uh, with a small group up there. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to make a character based off of my, the character in my story. And then I can play them. I can kind of workshop this character and kind of figure out who this character is. Uh, and it was really useful because when I came back to like, you know, get back to my script pages, um, I knew I knew more how to write that character. I knew what they would do or how, what they would say or think uh, because I had been in some situations with that character. So, I mean, all this stuff like making movies and Dungeons and Dragons and some level it's playing, you know, it's like you're just playing... Like making movies, like playing with higher stakes, I suppose,
3: um,
0: <laughs> but, uh, but it's all coming from like, you know, your imagination and, and these ideas.
2: That is so fascinating because my next question is exactly, have you ever used your experiences playing d d in your work as an animator or director, and how has it impacted your creativity and approach to storytelling? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's so nice to be able to like literally live that character's life, does that make sense? Like literally yeah. RPGing, right? um i've seen some videos online that like as a non-animator i was like surprised to see but it's so obvious now where like when they're starting to create these characters for movies they oh correct me if i'm wrong but they'll make these animation tests of like how does this character sit in a chair that's it Mm -hmm. the scene is them sitting in a chair and then like every character sits in that same chair but they all are going to do it in their own way that's special so one character was going to maybe fall off the chair a little bit. One character is going to do it with poise, you know? One will spin the chair. (laughs) And it's kind of like that. You're, like, creating this, like, backlog of information of, like, who these people are in the first place before you go in with a tremendous budget and actually put them in the scenes, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And in a lot of cases with those animation tests, like, if there's an idea that's, that's funny enough and good enough, like, sometimes, like, an entire sequence will be built around an animation test that an animator came up with Um, or like a gag will be worked in there. But, um, but one thing that's really interesting with playing D and D is, you know so so here's this is a very specific example but it, but it's it's interesting from a storytelling perspective um, I was playing one-on-one with with my wife and she was uh, in this situation our characters in the situation where she was like trying to find her way on some path in the forest and there was a, a fork in the road um, and she was like kind of hanging out there for a while so uh, this is very specific D&D stuff for for people who are playing in your audience but um, but you know like you roll for like a random encounter or something like that like because she hasn't done anything in a while and i roll um, there's all these tables of things like you know do they encounter like a monster do they find something and um so just by rolling the dice I'm like oh, okay so while you're standing there you happen to find uh a, like a lock like a padlock um and so she picked it up and it was a completely random event but watching her she was like so this padlock was at the fork in the road was the padlock leaning more to the right or to the left? And I'm like, wow, she's (laughs) she's making an association. And then it's like, you have to, now I have to like lean into it, you know what I mean? And like decide if I go along with that or if I try to, you know, discourage her from making the association. But when you're telling a story in a film, you have to think like anything that the audience is gonna encounter, they're looking for things to associate. So you can say, do something really confusing because a character finds an object or something like that that gets too much importance put on it and now they're going to be looking for the relevance of that object or that experience and if you don't have any plan for it it's like the checkoff's gun thing right like mm-hmm. if you show the gun like you got to use it um and if you're just like no it's it's cool like if, if there's a gun in the drawer it's going to make it be scary and you never use it the audience is going to feel you know like he, they got ripped off uh so D. I think will show you a lot of real time sort of um, focus grouping about like how audience respond to story content. That is so yeah.
2: fascinating. I love D&D too. Um, but I've only ever played one real campaign. I tried joining the D&D group in my middle school and mm-hmm was not, uh, basically they told me it wasn't for girls and I was really sad. So I sat with the other girl that was in the group and we just made Pokemon games out of it.
3: Okay. Uh, and I always <laughs>
2: remembered that. And I was like, because we were catching the monsters, you know, instead of fighting them. <laughs> and I always remember that as like, I, 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 I was much older when I actually played D&D and I was like, I never really played d and I was in the D&D group, but I wasn't playing D&D. But now I realize D&D and storytelling it's what you make it, right? Yeah. So I was playing D but it was just our special way, you okay. know. <laughs> the,
0: last, the last time we played, the the DM had actually like made it a Pokemon kind of themed thing where we had to go and like catch a Manticore, and... that's awesome.
1: It's yeah. super my mom, fun.
0: my mom wouldn't let me play D because she thought it
1: was the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the I grew up in the eighties, and I think mm-hmm. that was like the big thing. It was like it's the devil i remember uh i i remember that awesome badass red dragon it was like cause like I think like it was in a marvel comic book and it was like there was like advertisements for d and d it's like the red dragon I was like that's so cool I did watch the d and d cartoon though the mm-hmm. the one with like the you know the little like you know the three headed dragon the dude like the horn coming out yeah. like i lo- like i, I love that but uh i got i got i don't know where I saw it was like in sixth grade and uh, there was like D&D and there was like Warhammer 40k uh, and there was – and and I remember looking through it and I was like, whoa, this is like heavy, man. Like some of the 40k stuff was like really violent and then like the D&D stuff was like all like mystical. There was like runes and stuff and I was like, yeah, I think this is the devil. And I, like, <laughs> and I got scared. But uh, – oh man i've always wanted to play like i i my nerd my nerd card on that is not punched yet i should say like i my nerd cred is, is severely lacking in the D department i've just never found a group to play with that like really took it seriously
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh or or really knew the rules or were willing to like walk me through it but like it does sound like you said it sounds like improv you know everybody's into it and everybody's like having fun and everybody uh is thinking and making associations and you have a dungeon master who really understands the like narrative uh and how to how to just make sure everyone's having an adventure and just like throwing curveballs like i mean there's no one no wonder people play this game for you know years and years and years um yeah. some camp i hear some campaigns go for like decades
0: yeah definitely yeah even like the like talking to that that friend group that we used to play with like you would talk about that night and like, remember when we were like in that in that room and the the dragon like came out from the corner. Of, you know, like you, you you talk about these memories as if they're like things that you actually shared with each other. So it's it's you know it's very geeky, but it's really fun.
2: Oh, there's the extra layer of creativity too, like the paintings that they have in the book and like we can make our own art isn't that awesome that mm-hmm. we have those skills to make our own art for that so we can make our little houses and the little minis and we can paint them <laughs> we can put trees in you know if we want to isn't that yeah, though, absolutely fantastic I think
0: the grick that I saw that you posted recently it was really really cool oh,
2: thanks hmm? uh, yeah I printed it <laughs> wait here never mind it's somewhere
1: else I got it in three D printing a while ago, and it, I just I've got resin everywhere, in my house It's like smelled like chem- weird oh, chemicals. <laughs> I know <laughs> that's I know. bad for you. <laughs> I, know. I have
2: my little owl bear that I made.
1: That's so rad! Wow. I need to get back into it.
2: So, Kyle, um, how do you balance, you know, this like super active career of like being a literal director on these huge movies? And you know, hobbies, D and D side passions, like actually having a life. Like, how do you find that work life balance?
0: Um, I mean, I think like I would say playing D D with my friends was such a great way to blow off steam. Like in the in the middle of production when production is really really hard. Um, and it's very transporting. So it's like really doing something, you know, different. Uh, so it's sort of like, in some ways, the answer sort of in the question of, of, you know, that you have a place to go and, and release and sort of like, you know, be free and to, and to breathe and relax. Um, I do think it's also really important. I mean, so there's so many times that even like, and when you're in crunch mode and everyone's working really long hours, uh, and you're having a conversation in animation dailies about what a character should should do, and you just stop to think like this is actually what we get to do, you know like this is it's not we're not looking at like spreadsheets at a bank or something like that or yeah. you know like and, which could be super fun for somebody, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you know like like we get to sort of you know it's very serious work but it's but it's play, mm. um, so I think like that's where it's really important to make sure that, you know, you do the kind of work that you want to do. So this sort of like um, ties in a lot to like, you know, um, a lot of questions in terms of like, what should I put on my reel? Or what should I uh, put on my, in my portfolio? And the simplest thing to say is like the kind of stuff that you would love to work on, uh, because that's usually where, like, if I'm looking, especially for like a viz dev artist and if they hate sci-fi, but they love fantasy, let's say, um, but they draw a bunch of sci-fi because they think that that's what it's going to take to get a job, then they'll get a job. And then they'll have to draw sci-fi all the time. And maybe all they want to do is like castles and dragons and stuff like this. Um, So it's like draw the things that you really love to draw uh, because then you'll get, you will get um, cast for that kind of stuff if you do it well. Um, You know, if I'm, if I was going to make, A fantasy movie, I would first go look and see like what artists are, have like a real strong point of view in that, you know, uh, because that's going to make, make, you know, your, your long day of work go by much faster if you're really loving it. Um, I think things get particular, I mean, definitely we can all be overworked even if we're loving what we're doing, but I think that nothing will burn you out faster than doing something that you don't want to do, you know?
2: That's absolutely so true. So true. So,
0: so we're, so like you, you were
1: talking about doing something that you love, but then doing something that you love for money Mm -hmm. changes the equation, doing something that you love for money and deadlines changes the equation or for somebody else. So, you know, how, how, how have you lasted this long? Like how, I'm sure you've gone through moments where you're, Mm -hmm. where, where, you know, you're, you're burned out. How do you find the will to carry on, Kyle? Like, how do you find the fire again?
0: Um, I would say a lot of it comes from you know like recognizing when I want to do something different and then trying to to cultivate that. Um and then hopefully being lucky that an opportunity will come that I can do it professionally, like switching from animation to layout and layout to directing that sort of thing. Um the uh, or switching from doing VFX creature animation to doing um, you know fully animated feature films with with fully animated characters um, that that keeps things fresh. Um, the other thing is like you know I do try to take breaks whenever I can. Um, and uh, you know definitely try to take, take a break between projects. Um, or like if you're working a lot, oftentimes like, I mean, if you're working a lot, one thing that's good is that you you're hopefully like getting paid some money for it. Um, And, you know, use, use that to offset, you know, like go on a trip for the weekend, do something like, just get out of your head to get out of your, your routine uh, to try to freshen things up. So um, that was one of the really cool things about living in, in Paris, which Paris is an amazing city on its own, but it's also like an hour flight to like italy or to london or you know like at so many other places so um you know after having lived in paris for like 20 years it was really nice to just like friday after you know your, the work day uh go to london for the weekend see it see a show like change change the scenery you know come back like totally refreshed um so it's it's like you know mini mini breaks and things like that. But I mean that's like it's it's so personal. It's like what you like to do. Like yeah. you know, it's not everyone's going to be be into that.
3: So
2: um, oh.
0: yeah, I think. But just shaking things up when you can.
2: I saw this quote on TikTok of all places that said something that totally took me um, by surprise. It said, "Burnout isn't doing too much. Burnout is not doing enough." And then he goes on to say, "Not doing enough of the things that actually bring you joy." And that bring yeah. you energy and peace and comfort. Uh, and I was just like, oh my God, like that is so true. Mm-hmm. Right. So, absolutely 100%. Yeah. Things exactly.
0: that feed you, feed your, feed yeah. your soul.
2: Um,
3: I, hey.
2: I, oh, I,
0: I was
3: going to say, go, go. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Me and
2: Josh they, do this dance. Like, I'm, I'm uh, stop it. Uh, so, know. you go first, Josh.
1: <laughs> okay. I was going to say, Kyle, so how does that work in film? So when you do a production, do you get time off until the next production, um, or like I, I know, like I think I, that's how I've heard it works. Like you, you work on a show, and then once the show wraps, uh, because uh, again, because you have like you know unions or you have like protections or you have something that's like guarantee you the next gig. This is just what I've heard. I don't know. I'm kind of mm. talking out of my ass here, but like, but like, so then you could t- you could take those moments to recharge. And then you have another, you have another production lined up. Is is that kind of how it works in film?
0: The, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely can. I mean, sometimes the breaks are because there's, the project's not ready to go yet, you know? So it's like you, you have, you're waiting. Um, and then sometimes you try to like carve out. Cause you know, I, I did Minions Despicable Me 3 and, um, uh, Rise of Gru, almost all overlapping with each other. Rise of Gru, there was like a little bit of a break after Despicable Me 3. Okay. Um, but Minions in, into Despicable Me 3, I was working on Despicle Me 3 for like the last six months that we were finishing Minions, um, like in, in story. But it's like what what the, the other project is demanding of you is much less than what the one that's going to be delivering soon is. Um, and then also once like Minions finished, it's sort of like, you know, when... Um, baseball players hold like three or four bats to like Mm -hmm. have like it be heavy and then they go with one bat. Uh, As soon as Minions wrapped, then Despicable Me 3 was still in only story. So you think about like a film and it's like the height of production and you probably have like upwards of 200 people working on it. And then at the beginning of a film and story, you have basically like you have some people in art, the storyboard artists, the writer, the editor. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there's like, you know, maybe a dozen, dozen and a half people working on the film for like the first couple of months. So you can imagine the rhythm just goes like instantly, like much more calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's another thing too, is like when, when you have like a slow day at work, um, like take, like take, take it to be grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to happen all the time, you know? Um, that's, yeah.
1: That's absolutely and true. And if you have
0: a day too also where like you didn't, you just couldn't like produce a lot, you know, like I used to put so much pressure on myself of like, I didn't get very far in my shot today, you know? And it's like, they can't, they can't all be like these stellar days where you just feel like you're just getting all this inspiration coming down on you. So, yeah,
1: no, you, you bring up a really good point because um, in video games, there's pre-production and then there's production and, and and before pre-production, there's like R&D, like, you know, mm-hmm. just trying to figure out systems and the mindset that you have to have. I think a lot of a lot of video game artists work in production because that's when you need the most people. That's that's going to be the time when you can cut your teeth and you get used to that rapid just like go, 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 go of production. We got to get this out. And then you ship a product, you ship a game or you, 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 you get you release the show. It's like, OK. And then it's like, now what? And yeah. so it's like let's all go to is is anything in pre production and you know if you're at an awesome studio that's like we're keeping everybody right let's just assume everybody's awesome and there's no layoffs but but I have I've experienced guilt I've experienced guilt when in pre production where it's like there's not nothing to do like yeah. what should what should I do and it's like well that's what we want you to figure out <laughs> like, what what to do and like I don't know have you ever kind of have you seen artists or young animators like go from the hustle bustle uh, of like production and then the pre-production and kind of get lost. Cause they're used to that when, when really they should probably be mentored to like decompress. Like that is a time to decompress. That is a mm-hmm. time to sort of like expand. And like, have you ever coached anybody through that? Like young, young animators?
0: Maybe like, you know, in specific situations, not as like a general thing. I mean, it's, I think a lot of what happens like one way I relate to what, to the story you just told is like like when I was animating at Pixar <laughs> and you're you're working on a movie and you're working on a shot that's going to be in the movie and so it all really feels like it's for something you know what I mean like it matters um, and then you go into the next movie and they haven't started like like animation production yet so you're you're doing animation testing and a lot of it's just like yes but but is this going to like, am I really contributing? Am I really making something like, you know um, because it's just going to go into a drawer or something like that. Um, but that's like a limited way to see it because you could actually be doing a piece of animation that influences what the character is in the story. Um, so it's more, I mean, that's more specific of like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed now. This doesn't matter, you know, um, mm-hmm. versus like I'm exhausted. Um you know, and that, but that's also like a lot of studios uh, who are trying to like keep everyone together because they know that like they don't want to have to go and like hire a whole new crew. That's so much cost and energy to do that. Um, so they're trying to find ways to keep a lot of their artists, you know, working. But oftentimes, if it's like a downtime in production and someone says I want to take two weeks off, they're just like, "Go, like perfect." You know, like we would much rather you go have your holiday now. Um, and then like come back and, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and work like the the long hours. Yeah. Yeah. Game studios are starting to move towards that. At least, at least what I've seen, I've seen,
1: I've seen, it's like, Hey, we just shipped a game. I'm taking two weeks and everyone's like, that's awesome. Specifically if it's like someone that they need, you know, someone that's really, really great. (laughs) Um, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that Kyle, because I think that is something between the two industries that's sort of like go, go, go. And, and learning how to like, like the times and seasons of, of professional creativity, you know, yeah. uh, how uh, when, when to really go on the gas pedal and, and when to sort of like explore that blue sky possibilities. And know that a lot of that stuff might just get shot down, but don't, don't stress, don't stress about it. Right.
2: So yeah. I go through this a lot with my students and my mentees, because even when the time is right for you to, you know, take a step back, breathe, relax, there is this like, capitalistic guilt that plagues them deeply, where your worth is almost tied to your productivity, like you're saying, you know, and getting over that actual mental block um, is so difficult and it takes work. So, like, mm-hmm. for the audiences, you know, like, try working on that because if you actually take time off and you're feeling guilty the whole time and you're thinking about work the whole time, then you, guess what? You didn't really take any time off, right? Yeah. And I'm the most guilty of this of all. <laughs> I, I feel like I work 24/7. I had a dream about this podcast tonight, so like, literally, I was. I feel like I was working. So you know, it, it's so difficult to do, but you do have to let go of
1: your, your worth being tied to your work. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I've learned to let go, Anna. I mean, yeah. I mean, me being an hour late to the podcast, like, what's up? <laughs> like, uh, it's Sunday, I'm chilling. <laughs> but no, it, it is. It's a skill. It is a skill that I think after a decade or so, you know, you're just kind of like, I, it's unsustainable, right? It's unsustainable to be in that. And, and I totally get what you're saying, Anna. Like that capitalistic, like, like my my worth is tied to my out- output. I gotta, I gotta post something on Instagram. I gotta, I gotta keep up with all the cool stuff, you know, I don't, I don't know for animators. It's like, maybe it's like 11 second club, or maybe it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I gotta, I gotta keep my demo real, like crispy clean and have people talking about it. But, you know, and I think at the beginning of one's career, that's probably appropriate. But again, I don't think it's sustainable. I think there, there, there comes a time when you have to sort of just breathe and re and and, 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 and gear yourself to be more about impact instead of, uh, you know, quantity, like the impact of your work versus the quantity of your work. Is, yeah, I mean,
0: logic. well, one one kind of interesting way to think about it is that there's two values being served on a on a project. And, and I would assume and you can speak to this if it's true in games, but um, there's definitely uh, and both are important. There's people who are on a project whose whole job is to like, make sure that the project gets finished on time um and those are usually people like working on on uh like line producers and coordinators and managers and that sort of thing uh are you hitting quotas and all this kind of stuff um and and you know you have to balance that because otherwise the movie's not going to be like a ship uh but on the other side it's like people who are like we want the movie to be good you know we want we want good ideas we want good animation we want good designs we want everything to be good and usually everyone on that side they're completely free of worrying about like, like this. This is the animator gets caught or the artist gets caught in the middle because uh, a director or an art super a director, like a layout supervisor, animation supervisor, will give you a retake, and your coordinators over here saying, "But it's due today." You know what I mean? And it's like, but the director's not going to final it until it's right. So you you have to get caught in that but that also becomes like your power too where if you it's not only about like hitting the quota it's about doing really good work and you can only do your best work when you're fresh and you're feeling good and you know um so i think it's if you position yourself thinking about that way like i want to do the best work i can do here uh and that's going to take an extra day or an extra you know two days or something like that especially with these retakes um I think it's sort of like maybe the manager is upset that you are always late. But, you know, without naming any names, I would say like some of the best animators that I've ever worked with or worked with at Pixar, uh, especially, uh, took the longest to do their shots, you know. But they're the shots that people talk about when they're walking out of the movie theater. Mm -hmm. So it's like no one's ever going to like fire that person for having done such amazing work. That was three days late every time, you know?
2: Yeah. That That's is, awesome. That is the exact opposite of what we tell kids at school, but I guess we do have <laughs> an agenda. <laughs> um, good deadlines to hit.
0: production okay. Would hate what I just said,
1: but,
2: um, <laughs> right. but no, uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a mentor once just tell me like, Uh, nobody can argue with, with kick ass. If it kicks ass, nobody can say anything, you know? Um, I have found out that people can still say whatever they want, even if it is kick ass, but at least you have a leg to stand on if it's high quality work, you know? Yeah.
2: So let's move into our quick fire audience question round in which we're just going to ask a couple of quick questions for Kyle. Uh, 88 on Instagram asked, what does he look for in portfolios when hiring? Um,
0: depending on like what so for an animator definitely like what we were speaking about like creating empathy like doing uh i would never put any like walk cycles or like of the basic kind of like character lifting a heavy object or stuff like that um i would definitely do so unless you've you've really twisted it and turned it into something amazing uh and unique you know um, but the best animation that I've ever seen on a demo reel is one where I forgot that I'm watching a demo reel and I'm like laughing or I'm entertained or moved in some way. And then it's like afterwards, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to hire that person because that's, that's what we want. you know? Um, if it's storyboarding, storyboarding is really interesting one because, um, for me, what I'm looking for is that the storyboard artist has like really good ideas Uh, and then I'm looking as a secondary thing that they've communicated the ideas visually in a clear way. And then the least important thing is that they draw really well. Uh, and a lot of people think it's the, it's like the opposite of that. Like you have to draw really well to be a story borrowers, but some of the best story borrowers that we've had is like, like this shy away from being stick figures, Mm -hmm. but ideas are so hilarious. It's like, you know, we'll in, in layout, we'll fix it. We'll fix like. How that how that character looks off model and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I would say for Vizdev and this, you know, other things we can talk about, but uh, like vi- like visual development artists, people in the art department, that's where I'm looking m- more for like a unique point of view of who they are. Um, like an animator, I'm looking for that too, but also I like, want an animator who can like animate in any direction, like any type of thing, but, but a visual, uh, artist somebody's doing like character design or environment design or something like that. Um, it's really good to know what their sensibilities are. Cause if I'm looking for like somebody to work on another movie, I'll, if I'm like scrolling through Instagram and looking at artists, I'm really looking for somebody who can speak the language of the movie that we're making. Um, and so that's where like that marriage happens really nicely where like, and then that artist is going to work on stuff that they love to do. Um, so that's my personal take, like from a director's point of view, looking at, at different portfolios.
2: Nice. Next question. What is the most important thing he learned while in industry? That's from LS3D printing on Instagram.
0: Wow. That would be harder to distill into like one, <laughs> one thing. I think it's Yeah. It's always been so... Uh, so different and different times. Yeah. Um, you know, like, lo- like in the beginning it was like, in the beginning it was simple. I was working on the Flintstones, uh, and there was an animator named James Strauss who had worked on, um, uh, Jurassic park and he was a supervisor and I was struggling with the shot for like four weeks. And I was like, sure that I was going to get fired. I'd been in the industry for like, you know, a couple months and, and he came over and I, told him what I was struggling with and he showed me like how he would animate it. And, and on that day, it was all about the, the workflow and it blew my mind. Cause I'm like you in, in 40 minutes of sitting here, you got to where it took me four weeks to get to. Um, and I never thought I would do that. And then like, and then at one point I had a reputation of being a really fast animator, like years later. So it's like, you get those things, you know? Um, I think like as a, as a director, it's all about, um, You know like the audience you know it's like who who are you making this movie for and uh you know i think it's important that you're making the movie for you but it's like you also want people to show up you know so like work on movies that um that were both both are true i think is is a is a really uh important thing um but know why they're reacting the way that they are like know what what people respond to um and how to like you know keep them on the hook and 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 all that kind of stuff like stakes and all these things like you can just mm-hmm. about that um, so you know it's been you know like in in layout it's like like knowing where the audience is looking that's all about like leading the eye like making it clear um, how much visual information can you give somebody where it doesn't like overwhelm them keeps them in the story keeps them wanting to know what's going to happen um, so every single department. Uh, is all like hinged around its own sort of like values that they're trying to serve to make the overall thing work really well. Uh, but what's interesting I think about animation is that it's a very like a microcosm of like the overall film, because you deal with changes Like characters like changing emotions, or even like if it's physicality, like shifting your weight from one foot to the other, that's a change, you know. So, and what are you dealing with when you're telling a story in a film? It's it's a big change, you know. So it's like macrocosm change. Um, So you can see like elements like in a small way, like relating to the bigger picture all the time. Nice. Three D or
2: three Diego Mello. On Instagram said, "Ask Kyle about the impact of AI in the near future."
0: Um, wow, I, I wish I wish I knew. Uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's amazing and scary, and like a lot of things, you know. It's it's in a lot of ways, I think it's really exciting to be alive right now and watching what's starting to happen. Um, it still feels like it's very far away from being something that's gonna like take away all of our work but who knows how how long that could take or if it actually would happen you know Mm -hmm. um i i think it's interesting i i actually enjoy looking at ai generated images because um it's almost like looking at what a fake intelligence thinks something looks like so it's like sort of creepy and fascinating in a way. So there's there's sort of like, I can see like it becoming a kind of fetishized art form in its own right. Um, the one thing, because this question comes up a lot, especially with Vizdev dev artists who are like, my job's going to go away because um, AI can can do this. And so far the experience has been like, I could only like tell an AI what I want the image to look like But a real living artist is going to be like, but you didn't think about this and it could be this. And like, here's another idea. And and I that's what I think is really valuable uh, as a director is the ability to um, be flexible, to be like, look, here's a great example. So when you're directing a voice actor, you would never line read the line to them and tell them, I want you to say it like this because then you're missing out on every way that they could say the line that you never thought of that could be a hundred times better. And so it's like, all you have to do is be Mm -hmm. like, does that serve the story? Is that what, is that, what is, is that in the right mood of where the character is at at that point in the story? And if it is, and it's, then it's great. And it's the same with an artist, you know? Um, But right now, like the AI art that I've seen in the, in the ways that the machines work is that it basically it will give you something as good as you're able to describe what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, as a director, I'm like, well, that is so insular that I'm not going to get anything outside of what I think I want. I might want something that I don't know that I want. You know what I mean? Yep.
3: That is kind Take of a the unique that perspective.
2: I, I haven't heard this perspective yet too much, guys. Like I've only heard people being scared of it. people excited to use it to make money (laughs) or things like that so that's
1: awesome yeah no no i completely agree with you though kyle like it's you want to be nice to the ai because someday it might watch this podcast and 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 realize (laughs) we talked we talked trash about it um but you can't make it, it it's i really like what you said about you 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 you're missing out on the variation that the actor will give you you know you're missing out on the variation like as an art director like I'm viewing this as from from an art director standpoint, right? And it's like I can't tell the prompt artist whatever. I'm like, hey, can you like turn the head just a little bit this way and make the hand like kind of like you know what I mean? Like because the yeah. AI won't the AI will give a completely new thing. Like they can't make those mac, micro adjustments. Um, and they and a lot of times it is just like a regurgitation of existing styles. Like there's nothing, and you would think that that would be something new. You would think that 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 sort of like uh, like remix of like. All these different styles would make something new and yet it doesn't and it's it, that's the mystery to me i'm like i'm like shouldn't shouldn't this ai be making like something that i've never seen before instead of making something that i've seen a bajillion times before right so yeah. and, and and so missing there's like a there's like a, a, an element of like creative chaos that's missing from ai mm-hmm. uh maybe that's soul maybe that's like the, the human the, you know the human spirit you know i don't know but like that that's what's killing it for me right now, and I'm enjoying watching the debates, and, and it's it's getting leaps and bounds. And I have seen a few skilled artists use it uh, as like a starting point, but then they still are still inserting themselves into the process and making it their own with their voice, not the AI voice. And yeah. I think that's that's the right way. That
0: that's for me, that's the more intriguing way to use that. Yeah, that but, reminds me, like of the. Um... I'm probably mixing up the story, but I, you know, like when they were having like chess players, like Bobby Fischer, play AIs, and the AI got to a point where it was always winning. But then the unbeatable thing would be like a human player with an AI. I think they call it like a like a chimera or like a centaur or something like that. Sounds rad. Sounds Um, very D and D. (laughs) yeah and 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 that might be an interesting way to go i mean one thing and so you can you know choose to use this or not if you want to because it's a little bit of like this like philosophical tangent um but in my own thinking about ai i i guess i wonder if uh let's say it gets to the point where it can do all these things that we're talking about you know like yeah it's it'll it's just early days right now and like five or 10 years from now, it's going to be able to completely direct and create a movie on its own that is going to be as good as like an Academy Award winning, you know, Pixar film or something. Um, Let's say that that is the reality. The only thing I can imagine that's going to happen to, uh, to like human culture as a whole is that we're going to evolve in a different way in reaction to that. And so, what we start to want, or what starts to be like the stories that really connect to us, like those stories in themselves, I think would change, you know. Um, and then it's like a question of like, does AI adapt as fast as 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 we do to that? Who knows, you know? Um, but I think like when you talk about soul, it's like I think one thing AI is starting to one conversation that is starting to happen is like, what makes somebody human? Versus like artificially intelligent, you know, like what, where is that coming from? Um, so I think maybe those are the questions to ask yourself as an artist So like, how do I uh, create something that an AI is going to eventually want to like synthesize, but can't do on its own? You know, I, I just,
1: you did, I just figured out how to beat the AI because what makes us human is our mistakes and, and the AI can never make a mistake. So what's going to become avant-garde in film is movies just have <laughs> tons of mistakes in them. Yeah, <laughs> be the human seen AI plan.
2: hands, AIs can yeah, make <laughs> hands. <laughs> no, but totally. Uh, you know, I was talking to my own assistant and we used uh Chat GPT and things like that too. And I was writing the description for our past podcast and I was like, Hey, just use Chat GPT. And, and she goes, You know, like, uh, nowadays so many people are using this stuff that we can tell that it was written by AI, and there's just Mm -hmm. this voice to the AI that is everywhere now. Like, we need to write this on our own so that we have our own voice, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, there's so much, there's so much to it. And, you know, uh, I've had lengthy conversations about about, about the ethics of it all, the copyrights of it all, the, all of that stuff. But yeah, like at the end, you can't take the human out of it, right? Because then we'll stop enjoying it.
0: Yeah, I think it's like, there was one, and this is a couple years old, but I saw a film that humans made based off a script that an AI wrote. And it's so bizarre and so strange. And so like, almost, I mean, it's like the uncanny valley of a story. Uh You know what I mean? It's like, so it's like, imagine like this, the 18 fingers on a hand version of the story, like where it's like, it kind of looks like a hand, but it's not, it's, there's something off about it. And, you know, I think that'll be – that would be really interesting to see if it ever gets the nuance, you know, that makes something warm and human like that. Uh,
1: That
3: that would would,
0: actually be scary. That's
1: what – that'll be the scary thing for me because right now I'm not really freaked out by AI. But when an AI makes something that's like truly – humans are weird, right? Like we can can start spotting things. At first it's like, wow, that's so novel. That's so neat. But Mm -hmm. after a while we're like, "Mm, I can tell. I can tell. I can tell that's a filter. I can tell that you're using a filter on your photo. But like, you know, five years ago, everyone was like, "Wow, you have it! That looks like a crazy picture of you. You're so beautiful." And it's like, yeah. ah, now I know. I know exactly what that look is. Um, we're good at spotting software layers on top of things. Like, there's a, a flavor to it, even in like audio. You know, like, we're like, oh, I can like auto tune was like this cool thing, right. and now yeah. we're like, and now we're like, now we can like, now we can hear it, right? Um, it's good, when when an AI can make something purely authentic where humans can't, that's the, that's, that's the time that I'm going to be like freaked out by it
0: but right and now. And maybe I like, I, I mean, I'm just like speculating because so much of it is like, um, I mean, I could definitely understand any artist being upset where they like, I can see that the AI has used my image as a basis point for, you know, um, yeah, that's, that, that would be horrible to do to yeah. that. Um, And I wonder if it would ever get to a point where it didn't have to look at a library of existing images to create an image and what it would create then. And how would we respond to it at at that point? Um, You know, would we call that truly like, oh, now it's actually creating art or um, rather than just synthesizing a bunch of other other artists? Good question. I don't know. It's a good question.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to but picture yeah. what that would look like. That would be interesting. Yeah. Last question in the quickfire round. Uh, LS3D printing with another question coming in. What systems did he create to stay productive and grow?
0: Um, I guess if it's like a conscious system, um, I think like even though I don't always practice this very well, but just trying to stay healthy, you know, yeah. like get sleep, eat right. Like get some exercise. Like that has a lot to do with productivity. Um, knowing like when you're t- like if you, especially if you like to work at night and if you've made the same mistake, like more than a couple times, you know, then it's maybe it's just time to like stop and go to bed. Um, and, and look at it the next day, looking at it the next day often helps a lot. Um, but, um, For systems for growing, I don't think that that's that's always been such an organic thing, like in my journey, that it's, I don't think I could have ever planned, mapped it out. You know, it was more just like following uh, what seemed like it would be fun at the time. Um, You know, so like really early on, um, this woman, Ricky Cleland Hurrah, she was the head of layout on uh, Toy Story 2. And I was uh, an animation directing animator. And she did this like master class at, at the studio for like like 14 weeks every Wednesday um, talking about layout. And what she did was she would like dissect films um, and like, why is this working visually? And like, she was such a good teacher and this stuff uh, and watching it like that was the seeds for me to want to become. Uh, to work in layout because I was like this is amazing like this isn't like a lot of animators think. You're like oh You're just putting the shot file together and getting the characters and everything and like handing it to the animators So they can go work, but it's like no you're designing the way that the audience experiences this movie so um, If I hadn't have been curious about that class, I wouldn't have gone to uh, You know gotten so deep into it and then tried to do it on a movie That would have led to directing short films that led to directing features. So it's like mm-hmm. You know, I think just being curious and like exploring things and maybe I would have gone and I wouldn't have liked it. You know, that's that's fine, too. Um, but uh, but if that, maybe that's the only system like be curious and and, and go for it.
2: So. Huge thank you, Kyle, for coming on here, taking a little time from your Sunday to hang out with us and share awesome. your expertise with the industry. Hopefully, people from all walks of life will watch this podcast, learn something from it, take it, take something into the industry, learn about curiosity and expression of, of storytelling and everything else that you talked about today. So thank you so much. We appreciate it so much.
0: Thank you for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle.
1: This has been an awesome conversation. I actually learned a ton, if I'm being frank, uh, and <laughs> and I time. and I really and I think it's really cool. I think your journey is super cool, and I love the things that we have in common in terms of creative fields. Like it's yeah. it really is. I mean, there there is no system, but the kind of is like there is a pattern. I'm 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 noticing, you know, uh, and and everything you said was just so spot on. So thank you again, Kyle. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having
0: me.
2: Um, Kyle, is there anything you want to promote or like a social media people can find you on?
0: Oh, um, no, I think this is, I mean, I was just like really happy to share this with you and everything. So, so, yeah, it's all good.
2: I think that's it. Oh, my goodness. Yay. Thank you, Kyle, for being our first guest. Oh, we just did it.
0: We nailed it.
2: Okay. (laughs) First guest. First guest.